Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. In preparing for this episode of the podcast, I came across a quotation in the journal Dimensions of Critical Care in Nursing from a nurse reflecting on being called a hero amid the COVID-19 pandemic. It's weird to be called a hero and have people thank you, and really inside, I'm just like, literally, I'm just doing my job. That is what I went to school for. This is what I'm doing with my life. They say it's the year of the nurse. We just did not think it would be this kind of year. This quote struck me as particularly and a particularly apt way to frame my conversation with today's guest, my colleague, Dr. Linnea Myers of the Department of Nursing at Gustavus, which happens to be her alma mater as well. After graduating in 2005 with a major in nursing, Dr. Myers went on to earn a Master of Science in Nursing from Duke University, and then not one but two doctorates, the first in nursing science from Vanderbilt University, and the second in developmental neuroscience from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. A licensed registered nurse and certified public health nurse with an interest in pediatric nursing, child development, and neuroscience, Linnea is also an active researcher who has published numerous single-author and co-authored articles in refereed journals in her field. She's an accomplished teacher as well, whose students, thanks to her dedicated efforts, are afforded opportunities to acquire hands-on public health experience beyond the classroom and campus. Indeed, her efforts have been recognized by the Minnesota Campus Compact, which honored her with its President's Civic Engagement Steward Award in 2014. Noteworthy, too, is her leadership as past president of the Minnesota chapter of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. She is, in short, a first-rate professor, scholar, and nurse, and I've been very much looking forward to talking with her about her life and work, the nursing profession, and public health and nursing amid the ongoing pandemic. So, Linnea, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me join you. Uh, I know I mentioned to you previously, but I've listened to these a lot over the past year or more than a year. Um, and it's been so fun to learn more about alumni of the college as well as staff and colleagues, faculty. So uh, thank you for doing these too. It's been uh, really enjoyable. Oh, thank you. Especially thank you for listening. <laughs> I mean, it's it's been just such a pleasure. Um, it, you know, it's not something I expected to do or really planned to do, but it's just been such a joy, so much fun uh, for me as well to learn about um, colleagues, you know, and even, I mean, I don't know, you and I probably, if we exchanged a few words here and then maybe, but we, right. I don't think we've ever yeah. sat down and talked. Um, right. And I don't know, you weren't, you were, you know, you weren't a student in any of the history classes, were you? Were, no, I, unfortunately, I, I never got over to the history department. I, I did art oh, that's history, okay. but. Uh, <laughs> All right, that's close. <laughs> we'll, we'll take that. But yeah, I mean, it's, so it's, it's going to be fun for me to, to learn um, even more about you than I already have just in, in preparing for for talking with you. So um, what has it been like for you as a nursing prof amid uh, COVID? I'm just curious, um, have you, you know, I guess we were all online uh, that starting March, 2020, when we kind of abandoned ship it. But since then, did you stay all online or hybrid or in person? Yeah, I, I have offered my classes online, um, but they've actually been technically hybrid because our students fortunately have been able to continue to go into the clinical setting. So they've gotten kind of hands-on learning in that environment. Um, and then the classroom has been a little bit more online for my courses. Some of my colleagues are back uh, doing more 
you know, some part online, part uh, in classroom learning with the students. So it's right. a mix in our department. Okay. And um, you, just from what I've read, you're familiar with online learning and teaching because yeah. you, for one thing, your dissertation at Vanderbilt, your doctoral work at Vanderbilt, was was that all online? Yeah, it was a really, uh, it, it technically was an online distance program. So there were four times in the course of that uh, program that we actually went live uh, to Nashville, to the Vanderbilt campus and spent a week in person with the faculty, with our classmates. Um, but the remainder of it was um, online, but synchronous. So, um, okay. I, I really enjoyed that style of learning and it's probably a little bit why I've, you know, continued to teach that way just because especially with our nursing students, I think it gives them a little bit more flexibility to take advantage of some clinical opportunities that might happen on what otherwise would typically be our class days at Gustavus. Um, and I, I've used the flipped classroom concept a lot in my teaching where I record lectures, yes. have the students watch those. And then, you know, when they come in person or are virtually uh, to our class, um, then right. we can spend more time doing discussion and active learning. Yeah, that's all really interesting. And and I mean, I never had taught online before yeah. and all, you know, sort of swore to myself, I ever do. But <laughs> it, it actually went fairly well. Um, and I, as I've said in, uh, to others, uh, on the podcast, I, I'm sure I'll, I'll continue some aspects of that, you know, uh, as, as, as things hopefully return to, to normal. And the other thing that just occurred to me listening to you, of course, is just, maybe we can get into this later, just the way so much medicine now is, is yeah. online really. Yeah. With, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think um, that's something yeah, that, right. you know, if you look for some silver linings in this whole pandemic, I mean, the transition that's happened in healthcare in terms of it being able to be offered in such a virtual format um, and be available to patients, you know, through apps and doing visits with their doctors or therapists through uh, their computer. Um, it's not for everyone, clearly, but it does work for some patients. And it's a way especially to, I think, open up care for people in more rural communities or harder to access uh, areas of the country. So um, that's one silver lining of this pandemic. It's really pushed forward uh, that initiative. I actually had a speaker um, in one of my classes uh, this past spring. Um, she works with the Mayo Clinic and she was talking about, you know, they had a goal of 2025 or something like that for their transition to kind of virtual visits and doing these online visits. Mm. And they were able to just get that up and going in 2020 uh, in the midst of the pandemic, just because there was such a wow. need for it. So it is cool to see how that innovation could really be pushed forward um, when the need was there. But um yeah. So. Yeah, and I, I think um, we're, we're we're desperate for silver linings here. Yes. So, um, yeah. But yeah, one. I mean that 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 just interests me in general because thinking about the 1918 pandemic, which I know you know I'm not, certainly not an expert in that history, but just what what stayed the same, what didn't stay the same. You know, it would just be so interesting to see what what the long term, not just short term, but long term impacts of of all this will be, including as you're suggesting in the area of of healthcare. Um, even thinking in my own case, just how exciting it was to hook up online with a vaccine provider <laughs> you know, and then yeah, see my yeah. records and, oh my gosh, wow, this is awesome. But of course, right. that presumes we all have, we have access to online, uh, you know, exactly. to, to Wi-Fi, which is another, another part of it. Um, so, you know, you went to Gustavus, which I didn't know until I was doing research uh, about you for, for the podcast. And um, tell us a little bit about first where you grew up and, and then secondly, how you how you found your way to Gustavus. 
Yeah. So I grew up not very far from Gus Davis. Uh I grew up in uh, Gaylord, Minnesota uh, on a farm. And um, I was the first uh, generation in my family to go to college. So I had an older brother that went to college and I had some cousins. But um, in terms of parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, um, no one had ever done that before. So um, Gustavus was always kind of where I was going to go. <laughs> Growing up so close by, mm-hmm. we drove through the campus a lot. And I always thought it was a really beautiful place and um, loved that it was close to home, but still far away as I wanted it to be. I also had a really... Right. Um, special cousin. Um, she's now my daughter's godmother, but uh, she went to Gustavus and graduated with an education major. And I just really looked up to her. And uh, Who's that? What is her name? Uh, her Well, her her maiden name was Gina Reeling, but now she's uh, Gina Webstead and she uh, teaches with the Sibley School District. And actually now she's doing I think, a Reading for America program that she leads. So. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So, so um, yeah. Gaylord is what? How far is Gaylord's? What? How many miles roughly north? Yeah, of, about north, twenty-five right? north miles uh, away from Gustavus, so not far. Right. Yeah, but as you say, far. It's far. You can't walk there. That's far. No, me. exactly. You could ride your bike. <laughs> Although yeah. I did enjoy a so, few times if I needed to go pick something up from home, I could do it in an hour round trip, and that was great. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I was kind of the same. I went to Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, which was. I don't know, maybe an hour or so from the suburb of Chicago where I grew up. But, you know, it felt, yeah, same thing. I could bring laundry home if I wanted to mm-hmm. pretty easily. <laughs> but I also, also feel like I was, I was far away. So, um, and, and like you, my, my mom, uh, she was, I've said many times in the podcast, she, she attended a two years teacher college. My dad mm-hmm. did not go to college. So I, I, I don't know whether I'm technically a first gen college. Yeah grad, but I, but I sort of consider myself that. Um, what kind of farm was it? Because my mom grew up on a farm and it's still in the family. Yeah. Well, it's it was a hobby farm, so there was no okay. acreage or crops, but a uh-huh. lot of animals. In some ways, an old McDonald farm, except we didn't have horses, but pretty much everything else. So, Oh, really? Um, so c- cattle, pigs, ch- yeah, chickens? Yeah, and... yeah. Sheep. Um, lots of my mom was wow. kind of into unique poultry. So we have guinea hens hmm. and um we did have Canadian geese for a while, and now she's down to just chickens and I think some regular geese. But <laughs> that's neat. So yeah. um, you didn't think about becoming a vet, or did you? <laughs> With no. all those I mean, as much as I grew up on a farm, I I, I liked people better. <laughs> um, so I always I I really had always thought I wanted to do something in healthcare, although no one in my family had been in healthcare. Um, I just. I knew I enjoyed math and I enjoyed science and I enjoyed working with people, but I especially also knew I liked kids and pediatrics. So um, I kind of had my mindset when I was coming to Gustavus, I was doing something in the health careers and didn't know much about nursing because, again, I just didn't have a lot of exposure within my family. And I was really lucky to not have a lot of major health issues as a child. So um, yes, kind of just stumbled upon nursing and actually was walking into the career center one day to learn more about what I could do with the nursing degree and uh, found this role as a nurse practitioner, which I knew nothing about. Um, but I learned that they could work in pediatrics. And so I just set my mind to it that I'm going to be that <laughs> someday. That's yeah, I, lo- so. I, I love these origin stories, how... Um, I mean, you, you you knew you wanted to go into public health, but you didn't know what the heck, what you didn't know much about the nursing major or nurse practitioner. Yeah. What is a nurse practitioner? Let's let's uh, yeah. pause and help us figure that out. 
Yeah. So they're a nurse who has received um, advanced training and it can be at the master's level or now there's even a a doctoral level that they can be trained at. Um, And the role of a nurse practitioner can be really varied. A lot of times they work um, in primary care settings. So they do like, for example, when I was working in as a pediatric nurse practitioner, I was doing a lot of well-child exams, um, seeing kids for their, you know, one-year, two-year, ten-year checkup. But you can also do acute care visits, so things like sore throats, earaches. Um, there's also nurse practitioners that specialize and you know go into areas um, like ear, nose, throat. So they focus on problems in that area, or nurse practitioners that become um, specialists in, you know, OBGYN or other uh, areas. Hmm. And then, I mean, nursing has all sorts of uh, advanced uh, opportunities that um, individuals can do that aren't even just nurse practitioners. We have nurse anesthetists, we have nurse midwives. Um, So there's a lot of opportunities to take that nursing degree and um, go on. But what's nice about the nurse practitioner role is you actually um, have a level of independence um, where you are able to um, see patients, prescribe medication. Um, Often you work in collaboration with a physician, um, but Minnesota, many years back, nurse practitioners can practice independently um, if they have the right qualifications to do oh, so. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, yeah. So I that, think that's good. I mean, I, I, I've sometimes wondered why, why can't a nurse, why, you know, some, why, why can't a nurse prescribe? I mean, nurses, so we, you know, preaching to the choir, nurses so often know much more about the patient than the, than the doctor. Uh, right. So that's been my experience anyway, not, not just in, not yeah. just in the hospital setting. Um, so that's interesting. I did not know that about, about Minnesota. Um, what, you know, <laughs> did you, did you play nursing or doctor when you were <laughs> growing up? I mean, you must not have had any traumatic pediatric experiences. No, she, <laughs> no <laughs> I, but you know what I did play a lot of was teacher. So I think in the back of my oh, mind, yeah. I was probably always really interested in teaching. And that is also something that drew me to the nurse practitioner role because I knew so much of the care that I would provide to patients would be about teaching. But um, it obviously uh, stuck and I I took teaching to the next level. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I can relate because I used to play, um, I used to play teacher also. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I mean, when I was a kid and one, one I remember one, uh, it was my great aunt's house. Maybe my, or my aunt, she had a, she had a whole, you know, bunch of teachers, like student desks and things oh, in the basement. Yes. We could really turn it into a schoolroom. Yeah. It sounds I mean, like I got my childhood my, too. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I was, my yeah. daughter was just asking me what I, what I liked to play when I was little. And my mom also had uh, two teacher or two student desks in our basement and a little chalkboard oh, yeah. and, that's it. Uh, yeah. It was great Same. fun. <laughs> yeah, that's our that's our that's our teacher education right there. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> For better or worse. Um so you know, I'm curious about your, you know, you have I mean, gosh, your 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 work is just amazing. I want to talk more about that in a second. Your your doctoral work. Sure. But I mean, are you atypical? I mean, m- most nurses don't go on to get graduate degrees and PhDs, or or, or am I wrong about that? I think a lot of I do think a lot of our Gustavus graduates will go on eventually to get like a master's or this um, this doctorate I mentioned. It's called the Doctorate of Nursing Practice. But the PhD still remains a more difficult degree for uh, nurses to mm-hmm. obtain. And I think part of it is just, you know, when you graduate with a degree in nursing, a lot of people go right into the field and start working, um, you know, and sometimes you assume leadership opportunities um, just you know, by through experience working in a setting. And so it's not always that people need to go back, but um, 
you know, if you want to teach or you want to do some of these advanced practice roles I talked about, like a nurse practitioner or a nurse anesthetist, then uh, that's the real impetus for a lot of people to go back and get um, an advanced degree in nursing. But I would say a lot of our, we, we collect this data, but I don't know that I have a formal statistic, but it's a fair number of our students that go back, um, maybe not right away, but in the five to 10 year horizon to get um, master's or doctorates and be able to go on um, and do advanced practice. And there are a few that go on to get PhDs. It's kind of fun when mm-hmm. we sometimes are scanning lists of other mm-hmm. schools of nursing and like, oh my gosh, this is Augusti. <laughs> she has a PhD <laughs> in nursing. That's so cool. Um, yeah, I actually well, have you're one, one of, my, of them. You have two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You have one no, of your one what? of my um, PhD classmates from Vanderbilt, he um, went to teach at a school in Texas and mentioned I think I know somebody here. She's on faculty and she's got uh, her undergraduate from Gustavus. And sure enough, um, she's a guestie and that's great that they're everywhere. That's awesome. Well, the nursing program at Gustavus is first rate. And maybe um, before we get into your the specifics of your graduate work, talk a little bit about your experience, both your experience as a nursing major and just in general, your Gustavus experience yeah. as, a, as an undergraduate. Yeah, I mean, it. I loved Gustavus and it was quite an amazing place to uh, get my undergraduate degree, but I I really enjoyed being a student in the nursing program. I think the opportunities that we had for uh, clinical experiences were top notch and they still are. We're still at all the same places that I was able to go to as a student, which is fabulous. I mean, the top hospitals in the metro area, but also some rural uh, settings. So we got a really nice taste of kind of urban suburban healthcare as well as um, more rural healthcare and how those are similar and different. Um, yes. We had outstanding faculty at the time that I was a student. My favorite professor being now my colleague, uh, Barb Zust. Um, yes. And I really have to give Barb credit. One thing that she did, um, and I think part of it is because she was actually going back for her PhD herself while I was a student in the program, is she um, started uh, independent research studies with students. Um, And I just thought that sounded really interesting as a junior nursing student at Gustavus, and I thought it would be fun to work with Barb. And it truly was a life-changing experience to actually come up with a research project, work alongside her to develop it, implement it, analyze the data. Um, I was able to do a presentation for it at a national conference, um, which in some ways was life-changing because it was right near Duke, um, which was a place that I had applied to for graduate school and wasn't sure if I was going to go to because I'd never been there. And although I knew it had a really good reputation and had a fabulous nursing school. Um, but because this conference was right next door, I actually was able to go visit the campus, fell in love, and it uh, made my decision I love, for me. I love so, it. Yeah, yeah, I love so. it. It's just con- contingencies like that. And, oh, it's great. Um, and, and just uh, uh, happy happy coincidences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this emphasis on, I mean, I know, you know, students can have this experience at, at a big university too, but there's something about working closely with a professor in a liberal arts college setting yeah. and doing that research. And clearly you learn how to do research. I mean, you are, you, you do a tremendous amount of research and published a great deal. Yeah. Uh, not to mention, no, you, you need to know how to do that for your doctoral work. Um, mm-hmm. What were, what were, um, <clears throat> excuse me, what were some of the uh, clinical experiences you, you recall as a student that, that, that stand out, if any do? Yeah. Uh, well, I think the most 
transformative one was probably our final semester nursing experience, which our students still have, at where you spend a pretty significant amount of time. I think our students now spend about 120 hours, and I'm sure it was fairly similar when I was a student at the time. I don't remember it, um, mostly because I didn't need to know it as much as I need to know it now. But um, <laughs> you work one-on-one with an assigned nurse at a hospital uh, setting, and mine was at St. Francis in Shakopee. And that was just an amazing experience to really just kind of pull all my learning together, apply it to the care of patients. I mean, I, you know, you start out with one patient and then you start to increase to two or three or four patients and learn how to care for, you know, a typical shift of patients that you would have as a a nurse working on the floor. Um, And it was just such a powerful experience, like I said, to see all this learning come together and actually be able to uh, perform the role of a nurse um, at the end of these four years of my education. And, um, yeah, that was that was a really special Did one. Of course, I loved peds. So then our, my pediatric rotation, <laughs> it was at Children's and I just it was a great place and just really. That's in, uh, in Minneapolis, right? Children's. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So. Yeah, that's. um. So, you know, I, this may be a stupid question, but nursing, do all nursing programs have clinical experiences? Is that just a given? They have to have some kind of uh, clinical experience, but whether or not it's in person, so like students actually get to go to a hospital or a clinic to actually practice skills on real people, or if it's uh, simulation-based, varies a little bit. Our program is still pretty okay. strong in the in-person clinical piece, although we have built in some simulation. And part of that is the simulated learning environment um, is a great way for students to practice new skills and to um, learn in kind of a, a safe environment with low risk. Um, but they still obviously need experiences working in person with people and actually getting to do skills um, in person. So, um, yeah, so clinical experiences are required, but how they look <laughs> can vary from school to school. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's quite interesting to me. And I'm thinking of um, sort of airline pilots too, who get so much of their experience mm-hmm. in the simulator and then, and yeah. then the real, real life, real time, you know, flying real airplanes with real people. Exactly. Um, exactly. Both, both of those sound, if I, if I could choose a nurse, I'd want, I'd want her or him to have both, I think. Um, yeah. And by the way, this yeah. all reminds me, I don't, I don't know if I've shared this story with anyone on the podcast, if I've had reason to, but my one clinical, my one clinical nursing experience, not really, but I was on the Gustavus Faculty Personnel Committee some years ago, and uh, my colleague, uh, Anne-Marie, uh, now retired then in, in French, uh, she and I were designated to observe the teaching of a nursing professor, Judy Gardner, who's terrific. Oh, Judy, yeah. Judy was yeah. probably there when you were there, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Now, now yep. retired. Judy Gardner was at a hospital up here. Now I can't remember which one up in the Twin Cities and where I am now. And uh, so she was coming up for tenure. And she was on the maternity ward. And so there I am with, you know, my colleague, Anne Marie. And talk about feeling like, I mean, I mean, a fish out of water. I'm the, you know, I I just felt, I mean, at least Anne Marie can claim to be a mother. She's a mother. You know, she went through, I I knew not. I'm walking into these hospital rooms. We're following Judy as she does her work and her students. I'm just like with new mothers, you know, and their babies. Oh, my God. So um, I just I just had even more respect for what nurses do. Yeah. But also couldn't wait to get the heck out of there. Actually, I felt so, (laughs) so self-conscious and and, and awkward. I feel like I've heard Um, this story in some way, shape or form, probably from Judy at some point. Oh, maybe from Judy. Not in in a bad way. Just how how thorough the personnel committee is. Oh my <laughs> god! Yes, that was that was thorough. I mean, yes. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so the um, now what? So in your case, was it really? I mean, what what 
you've talked a little bit about what motivates uh, nursing majors in general to go on for graduate degrees. What, what was it in your case specifically that took you to, to Duke and then, and then Vanderbilt? Yeah, I think, you know, I, when I thought about the nursing career, I, I think I had immediately thought about taking on some kind of position of leadership, um, as well as having a little bit more autonomy. I was really young, so I did something kind of untraditional, um, kind <laughs> of following up on what you said of, I finished my bachelor's degree and then went right on to my master's degree. Um, typically people take a year or two, get at least a year or two. And like I said, some of our graduates, it's more kind of the five to 10 year time frame. Um, so I went right away because I was super eager and I'm as evidenced probably by my CV, I'm a lifelong learner. So I think I was just right. ready to continue um, my learning trajectory. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that I think was probably the main reason I went on right away is just because I was, like I said, eager to learn more. I wanted to uh, be in a position of leadership. Um, and that's kind of the path that I saw was where I needed to go uh, to kind of pursue that next level. And you certainly caught the research bug already with, with yeah. Barb Sust and the, yes. and the program. So what um, the, the, your work at Vanderbilt, let's start there. Your dissertation, your mm -hmm. doctoral work there seems quite interesting. Um, we know some kids with uh, uh, some parents who have autistic kids, but talk, talk to us a little bit about what that, that, that work is about and its significance. Yeah, yeah. So um, I designed a research project that was looking at um, how parents and healthcare providers communicate kind of during this period when a parent or someone else first identifies a concern with a child about their development to when that child is formally diagnosed with, um, in the case of my dissertation, I was looking at autism spectrum disorder. And I think the idea from this study actually came from some of my early days practicing as a pediatric nurse practitioner. I still can very vividly remember doing developmental screening on a young child um, and finding a delay. Um, I think it was in the motor, the area of motor skills, so like how they, you know, move their arms, legs, head, so forth. And I communicated my concern to the family, um, and then I never saw them or heard from them again. And it kind of didn't sit right with me. I mean, part of it was, what could I have done better? You know, how could I have met that family more where they were at? Um, so that, you know, the next steps that that child needed to go through in terms of evaluation or therapy um, actually happened. And so that was kind of the impetus, I think, for my research project. And I, I think that's something, I mean, when I actually did the project, it's something that I had heard uh, from some of the families is ways that providers, and it could be pediatricians, nurse practitioners, um, some of them talked about like psychologists that they worked with, how things that they said or communication that they had with the families either served as a facilitator and helped the family seek out the services that they needed to seek out to support their child or served as a barrier um, and, you know, prevented that family uh, from getting care for a variety of reasons. And so that's what my project explored. I did one-on-one um, -on -one interviews with parents, and then I also had them fill out some uh, surveys using kind of standardized questionnaires to look at things like the communication process, as well as kind of their level of stress. Um, around having a child with a developmental delay. So that was the project. And then um, eventually I was able to publish a paper out of that, um, kind of detailing the findings from those interviews with the parents. Um, 
So what, were some, was, what were some of the key the key findings, especially? I mean, first of all, the the, the role of communication in healthcare is just. I yeah. mean, cannot be overstated, right? How important it is. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you, you, did, you take, did you take any comm studies courses at Cassandra's or not? I didn't, but I would say that a big part of our program, especially in the early uh, semesters, is focused on communication and therapeutic communication with mm. uh, patients and families. So um, even though we're not formally required to take communication studies, we do have quite a bit of coursework around um, okay. you know, ways to... Enhanced communication all, with our families. That's and all good. <laughs> all good. So, what did you find? I mean, what was? I mean, what was the? What was the? Was there a key problem in the, in the communication between the parents and the practitioners? Was there one thing that you know, one kind of problem that stood out? I think. I mean, it's it's probably not a super shocking finding, but that you know, people wanted to know that their concerns were heard, um, okay. and that you know, people thought their concerns were valid, and so. I had lots of parents provide examples of where they felt that providers did a really good job of that um, and that parents felt like a partner in the care of their child. And, you know, some parents talked about wanting to feel like they were the expert on their child and that the provider acknowledged that and didn't try to, you know, poo-poo their concerns or tell yeah, them, you yes. know, they didn't know what was going on with their child. So um, right. that was... That, that's, yeah, you're, you're, ta you're taking the words out of my mouth because I was just thinking... You know, it can occur even, well, it certainly happened to me as a historian, a professor with undergraduates, but where you need to, you need to acknowledge the person's, especially a parent's mm -hmm. knowledge. Mm -hmm. And yet they, they might, they might be wrong, right? Or maybe they may mm -hmm. not, they may not have an accurate or full grasp of, of the situation. I just think that's tricky um, mm -hmm. for the, for the practitioner. Um, and I imagine some are just, just better at, at it than others, but how do you, yes, how do you make the parents feel they're heard even while if necessary kind of gently i don't know what the answer is correcting their their understanding or right. imp improving upon their understanding maybe yeah yeah uh, yeah i mean it really it does uh, really come down to it's an art and i think every patient needs care kind of tailored to their special needs you know there are some people who can receive information a little bit more blunt and there's people who need it yes. kind of there was a great article that i cited a lot in my dissertation uh study it was about it was called sugar coaters and straight talkers and you're like yep that oh, really is great. like parents can kind of fall in one or the other camp mm -hmm. there um or somewhere in between and your job as the provider is to figure out where that parent is and how to meet them where they're at um in that communication that's excellent and that's a great title. And again, it applies to our teaching, right? Sometimes you, you have a student who can take mm -hmm. the blunt criticism and other times, yeah, you need to sugar. I remember once long ago, I was, I, I could tell the student felt so bad about the, this is my first or second year, because Davis, so bad about a D that I, I so sugarcoated it that by the end, the student said to me, and I quote, I've never felt so good about receiving the D in my life. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's, that's probably not good. Nice I work. Like, but yeah, that was really sugarcoating. <laughs> anyway, um, it's super important. So you did that, you did that research, got your doctorate. And then what um, led you to, is it, is it, am I pronouncing it correctly, the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm? Yeah, yeah. What exactly. led you? What led yeah. you to? So, well, I was um, actually, that's neuroscience. Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, well, I was actually kind of looking ahead to um, a place to do a sabbatical leave. Um, and just, I knew Gustavus had this Swedish connection, obviously, and Karolinska right. had come up several times as a place that students had done internships at. Um, so I was kind of looking around on their website and actually found um, a PhD position that was uh about to take place um, in developmental neuroscience, but a focus on early detection of autism. But instead of the communication process with parents, this one was looking at um, physical features in children that would help us potentially identify uh, signs of autism or other neurodevelopmental disorders like attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, um, how to identify those early. And so um, my husband and I were both kind of at a stage um, in our careers, we were thinking, gosh, it could be kind of fun to go to Sweden. He has family who lives there. We really liked it while we were there. We were kind of oh. interested in living abroad and having what, what kind is, of that international experience. Uh, so David graduated from Gustavus too, and he oh. Um, oh. now works with United Health Group uh, in finance. So he worked with oh. them before we moved to Sweden. <laughs> he um, actually got a job in Sweden uh, through Augusti Connection, and then um, he's now back working with them since we've returned uh, with United Health Group. So, is his last name Myers too, or is it what's his? Is his last name Myers? Yes, David Myers. Yeah, he was a math remember. major. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I may have. Yeah. Well, anyway, okay, Dave. So yeah, that's another great story about Gustavus. People who. Well, all schools, I guess, meet. Yeah. It's true of Kate and me at graduate school. So you met and you went to, or you went to Sweden. What did, tell, tell us a little bit about the institute. Is it, I don't know much about it. I mean, yeah. is, is it a hospital or yeah. just a research institute? Yeah, it's actually, it's a lot like what the Mayo Clinic is here in Minnesota. So it's, it's actually one of the most highly regarded medical institutions in the world and actually has a really wow. cool partnership with the Mayo Clinic. So there's, a, for people here in Minnesota, I think the Mayo Clinic is a good place to kind of compare it to, but um, it's the major kind of medical university. So they train uh, the majority of healthcare providers uh, in Sweden. There's other institutes that train too, but it's kind of, I would say, the most prestigious one. But it's based in Stockholm, um, and they do fantastic research on a variety of topics. But the study that I worked on, so I mentioned it was an early identification of children with autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders, we call them. Um, it actually was based on a twin study. So Sweden's really famous for twin studies, um, partly because they have these great registries um, at the national level where you can find twins. Um, I think there's also just a nice, people in Swedish society at least feel this importance and value in research and want to contribute to it. So there's a real willingness to participate in research. I mean, for the studies I wow, was working on. Yeah, yeah, it's really, they're really lucky in some ways. But um, for the studies I was working on, it was with a lot of children. So parents have this really generous parental leave where they can take time to participate in studies or um, get time away from work, um, which isn't, you know, in the same way always possible here in the U.S. So um, no. I worked on this <laughs> twin, exactly. So I worked on this twin study where um, they recruited twins from all over Sweden um, who were what we call typically developing, as well as twins who had known um, or suspected um, neurodevelopmental disorders like autism and ADHD. And what was really interesting is there are some twin pairs that you know, one child has the disorder um, and one child does not. And those became really interesting twin pairs because then you try to look at, well, what's different between the two? Um, but the study has recruited um, over 200 twin pairs. It's one of the 
largest uh, studies of this kind in the whole entire world. Um, so it was really interesting to work on that project. And um, I looked at medical exams that were done on these um, twins that looked for um, abnormal physical features, which was a very interesting project for me as a nurse because so much of our training is focused on the assessment process and identifying normal yes. and abnormal findings. So it really aligned nicely with my training as a nurse. Um, and they had never had a nurse um, in their department before, um, at least do a PhD. Wow. Um, so they were kind of... Uh, <laughs> Um, how do I, how do I say this? <laughs> they kind of went out on a limb, uh, bringing in a nurse. And I, I think they were pleasantly surprised the skills that, uh, nurses have and can bring, uh, to the research environment. And I was really proud to represent nursing in such a positive way too. Um, but I primarily oh, yeah. worked I mean, with psychologists and psychiatrists. So I was a little bit of an anomaly, but, um, a welcome one, I think. <laughs> that's all just terrific. And, um, you know, it occurs to me to kind of point out the obvious. Not only have you done two doctors, but you've done them in just top-notch programs, not to mention the Duke program. That is really neat. I, yeah. And now that you have described the Institute, I do know that I've heard of it because my uh, because of the twins uh, angle, my, my wife, Kate, who as you know, Tadika Davis now retired. She yeah. is. She has a. She's a twin. Has a twin brother, and I do remember oh. uh, we've we've talked about that. Some of those studies. Yeah. It's also just cool. Yeah. I mean, the, the imagine. Yeah, imagine a country where the population is not only interested in and willing to participate in research, but has the time to do it. Hmm. That's mm, mm -hmm. Mm, note to self. You know. <laughs> so you come out <laughs> of that experience. Now, in in between. Um, I'm just trying to grasp the chronology here a little bit better. Yeah. You're doing some practice as a nurse in in, be, in between the two doctorates is, or before the first one? Yeah, primarily before the first one. In other words, it's not just straight, straight research. Yeah, no. I, I When I graduated from Gustavus, I went and got my master's, but I simultaneously uh, worked as a a nurse on a, a pediatric hospital uh, unit. And then once I graduated from Duke, I worked as a nurse practitioner um, in a couple clinics uh, in the metro area. And then I shifted to more the public health realm and worked with the Minnesota Department of Health for several years um, in the area of child health. But I was doing a lot of teaching, um, traveling around the state and teaching healthcare providers. Um, and then when I started at Gustavus, because I went from the health department to Gustavus, um, I had worked a little bit in, in pediatric home care. And so, and then once I started my PhD, life just got too busy to keep up the clinical practice. So um, I stepped away at that point and hope to return actively to the clinical setting again um, in the future, but um, haven't quite made it there what you, yet. What do, you, what do you, um, I mean, what do you miss about the clinical experience um, compared to, compared to the research? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really miss the interaction with the patients. I, I, I love teaching in any way, shape or form. So that I probably, when I talk about the interaction is the, the hands-on teaching that I can do with families or, um, you know, other individuals. But, um, I, I do think it's quite fun to work in the clinical environment and bring those stories back into the classroom. I mean, I have a good memory and can remember, you know, patient experiences from when I was practicing, but, um, it is really fun to bring active uh, clinical knowledge uh, to the students. So, um, without uh, violating any confidence, do you have a do you have a particular memory of a patient experience or your experience with a patient you want to share, <laughs> or you have shared with oh, students? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I talk a lot about um, with my students. Um, 
I I never thought when I went, decided I would do pediatrics that I would want to work in the area of oncology. I just thought, especially with pediatric oncology, that would be a really hard area um, yes. to work in. And yet my very first job as a, a new graduate nurse in a pediatric setting was on a floor that had what we call general pediatrics. So it was things like appendectomies and respiratory pneumonia type infections, but it was also um, children who had... Um, different types of cancer. And um, I was just amazed at how much um, those children just became so special to me. And I mean, I can still see the rooms they were in and um, think about the sure. conversations we had sometimes late at night. But um, it, it's not one particular story. It's just what a touching area of nursing that is. And, you know, there were times I hope I brought, you know, some kind of healing uh, to those children and their families or some kind of peace um, to them as they were going through a very challenging stage in their life. So, um, yeah, no doubt yeah. you did. No doubt you did. I, um, I admire you and others who do that kind of work. I am not I'm not sure I could could do it. Um, but it yeah. takes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's gosh, I just think of my own, you know, my own few experiences in the hospital over the years, nothing, nothing mm -hmm. serious, but just the importance of the importance of nurses. I mean, it's nurses. Mm -hmm. You see nurses. I mean, the doctor you see, mm -hmm. at least when I was in the hospital, you might see a little bit, but it's primarily nurses and just how, just their, their, um, the way they can comfort you. I especially remember an experience mm -hmm. I had in high school, really, really had a really funny, funny nurse who knew just how to, how to meet me where I was as a, you know, yeah. teenage yeah. high school male who didn't want to be there. Exactly. <laughs> in the hospital. And uh, I can still picture her uh, and hear her. Any case, so um, the the um, you know you mentioned that you're. I want to talk a little bit about the work with Minnesota Public Health. Minnesota is it? I mean, mm -hmm. is it fair to say Minnesota has a deserved uh, high reputation in, in in public health as a state? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I mean, I don't have experience working for another uh, state health department, but I, having worked on the in the inside of the Minnesota Department of Health, there's amazing people that are working there, dedicated leaders who have you know amazing knowledge and skills, and I, we've been really fortunate. Even in our nursing program, we before COVID, we were able to do um, a tour. Uh, of the public health labs at the Minnesota Department of Health. And then we also had a nurse panel because we have some really outstanding alumni of our college and some of the other uh, local liberal arts colleges um, who are nurses that work in leadership roles at uh, the health department. And we've been able to do like what we call speed dating sessions where students get to learn <laughs> about uh, these nursing leaders in public health and um, just get a little taste of the quality of uh, public health at the state level in Minnesota. So um, it's been really fun to share that with our students um, and get them kind of excited about a potential future career in public health and where it could take them. Yeah, that's so, gosh, I don't know, just I, I have, as I've said before, a layperson's interest in, in public health, partly just reading about, just reading the newspaper and just thinking about how how flawed our, our, our healthcare system is, uh, needlessly so in so many ways, it seems to me. I don't mean in Minnesota, but just but just nationally, no. especially compared to a place like Sweden, not just Sweden, other yeah. countries um, which which spend, you know, spend less and have better better outcomes in terms of uh, at least in terms of life expectancy. So um, exactly. to continue continue down this public health path a bit, um <laughs> Let's imagine you're in charge uh, for for uh, the purposes of this this conversation. 
what are some of your priorities if, if you want to improve public health nationally in this country? What, what are some of the, you think, glaring problems or issues that need to be addressed and how would you, how would you go about addressing them? Oh, this is a good question. <laughs> Probably a fairly controversial. And that's, that's one, not I'm an not sure. that's not an exam. That's not an exam question. Or I'm just yeah. <laughs> Although you're giving me a great one for my students no. this fall, if they're listening oh, to this good. podcast, then they get a little study guide for the next exam. No, um, yeah, good questions. I mean, I think a lot about my experience uh, in with healthcare in Sweden, and you know, just as you were talking about how they uh, have really good outcomes and don't spend as much money. Um, you know, some things that I saw there, but I, I know these are all kind of somewhat controversial issues here in the U.S., but um, even just the value of something like a universal health record. So I, I just found that so fascinating when I walked into a doctor's office in Sweden, be it, um, you know, a general practice provider that I'm going to see for a sore throat, or I had both my children in Sweden, so going to see the midwife there, um, they could access my entire health history uh, through this one record and all the information that they needed about medications or past health issues that I've had was just readily available for them right there. Um, and then it easily translated to when I needed to pick up a prescription, I could go to any pharmacy in Sweden without any kind of pre-notification, um, give them this identification number that I had. Um, and because of this universal health record, they could pull up my prescription and give it to me. And um, it was just amazing to see how a system like that um, just made my healthcare feel really comprehensive. I felt like my providers knew what was going on with me. I didn't have to provide the same story over and over again. Even just simple things like I remember when I actually had to call uh, to set up um, our kids' first visits back here in the U.S. for them to see a pediatrician here, how much time it took just to even give things like the address where we lived and right. uh, all the health insurance information. And in Sweden, it was just this number I gave. And within a matter of seconds, they had everything they needed about my children. Um, and we could just be really efficient about you know, I needed to use healthcare for. Um, so that all, that all sounds like just incredible common sense to me. And what yeah. is it? What is it about our system, our our medical culture or healthcare culture? What what what's preventing it? I mean, is it? Yeah. Why, why can't we do that? Do you know? Yeah, there's a couple of things, and I probably am not going to list our be able to list all of them. But I mean, people have brought up concerns about privacy um, sure, because yeah. of that access, you know, to everything right. about an individual. I think, you know, Sweden's lucky. It's a country now, I think, up of 11 million people versus, you yes. know, the U.S. at hundreds of millions. Um, right. You know, it's they can do things a little bit differently because of that. But it, it's an interesting model and could still be worthwhile. Um, so those, are, I think, are some of the big obvious challenges um, that prevent something like a universal health record. But it, it does come up every once in a while that this is something we should have here in the U.S. and could be of value. Um, Absolutely. So. I think efficiency. And the other thing you said is just the sort of for the patient, the psychological uh, aspect of it, which is you feel, I think you said something like you feel like you're, you're, you have comprehensive 
mm-hmm. healthcare. And yeah. it does, I mean, I, it drives me crazy every time I have to go to a doctor, even the same doctor, yeah. or something, you know, yeah. fill out the same form, the same information. It's just, it's kind of, you know, and they, and we do have computers. I mean, so there's, right, right. I mean, you know, there could it's be just ways crazy. to streamline this. Yeah. Yeah. A- exactly. Yeah. What, the other thing I'm interested in hearing you talk a little bit about with respect to public health care in this country is the, um, some of the challenges of rural public health care, which you've had some experience with. Um, what, what are some of those those big challenges? I mean, I'm concerned. I'm thinking especially just about what I've read in the newspaper about um, there being you know hospitals closing or clinics closing in, in, in rural areas, people having trouble getting, you know, to get a vaccine, even having to drive so far from a rural area to, to a city, let's say. But just in general, what are some of the, the big challenges uh, facing uh, rural health care? Something we hear a lot about, especially in the nursing education realm, is it just, you know, trained staff and qualified staff who wants to work in these rural communities. Um, you know, often our new graduate nurses kind of gravitate towards the metropolitan areas. It's, you know, it's in some ways, an interesting place for a young person to live. But sure. there also, you know, are big hospitals that have a lot of resources and um when they go to work in a rural community, they get such a great experience as a nurse, but they have to wear a lot more hats and have a lot more kind of put on their shoulders probably earlier on than um, in some of these bigger metropolitan areas where there's a lot more resources for new graduate nurses. But yes. some of that, I, I, I think just having enough staff um, and like I said, the trained staff, um, you know, I, I do think, but like you brought up the uh, the whole ability now with virtual health care and giving right. people access to providers that otherwise would be, you know, a, a long distance to drive to or yes. go to see. But it's, of course, the caveat is you need the good Wi-Fi connection or some kind of um, ability to be able to connect with that provider. Um, right. I, I, I was thinking about I mean, exactly what I was thinking when I asked this question. I mean, that would be, it seems to me, a place where, where um, I mean, you know, online medical help could mm-hmm. could be really useful. Obviously they I mean I guess you can't just dial up an operation, you know, or if God yeah, forbid you need right. one. But but still it's just so important to have that infrastructure for the 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 connectivity in, infrastructure and then and then yeah, if if there aren't people, if there aren't enough qualified people in that rural area to, to have a way to connect with them um, mm-hmm. would be really important. Even even here in the metro I sometimes do that. I mean I'll call a uh, I don't know if it's Blue Cross, I can't remember, but a number where I can speak with a nurse, you know, or dial yeah. up a nurse yeah. you know, for some advice about something without having to schedule, a, you know, a doctor's appointment. Um, so you've, you've done all this, this practicing. I want to zero in a bit on um, nursing and COVID. I gather you, you have not had any, you, I, correct me if I'm wrong, have you had direct experience with, with COVID patients uh, no, no, I haven't. Our, our students certainly have through their right. uh, clinical rotations. And I know a couple of our faculty have helped with like COVID vaccination clinics. So there's some involvement in what's our a, department. But What's your sense of um, of what it's been like, you know, that, that quote I yeah. led with, but what's your sense of what it's been like, especially if you have some uh, anecdotes about uh, stories about some of our, our current students, but what is it like to be a nurse in this pandemic, I mean, I'm I'm aware of the I don't know what to call them. They're kind of like these little diaries that some nurses have, like mm-hmm. video diaries, have kept, mm-hmm. and just 
hearing them, especially early on in the pandemic. I mean, just yeah. the, you know, the yeah. stories they told and what they went, they, the nurses went through, um, mm-hmm. you know, often being the only, you know, no family member at the, at the, as, as the individual patient is, is, is dying. And there's the nurse trying to comfort him or her. But in any case, what, what, what have you, what do you know about, what have you learned about nursing amid this, this, this terrible pandemic? I think really, as you talked about, you know, the power that the nurse has, not in a bad way, but in a good way of, you know, being able to be there and care for these patients in such vulnerable times. Um, We actually, it's interesting you bring this up and we're we're not quite at the stage of analyzing this data, but um, this this kind of came to the forefront of my mind, along with some colleagues, um, actually one of my PhD uh, classmates, about specifically our new graduate nurses. It's already a huge transition when you graduate from a nursing program to go into a job as a nurse, um, and just you know that that mind shift of you're no longer a student now you're in charge, you're working under your nursing license and caring for patients independently on your own. Um, but we actually wondered what this transition, especially for our graduates in like 2020, um, yes. who finished nursing school, started working in the midst of a pandemic when there was still, you know, a lot of uncertainty and somewhat chaos too. Um, and we actually um, conducted a survey and we ran it this spring and we're hoping to start analyzing the data now um, where we asked these new graduate nurses. So nurses from our 2020 class, 2019 and 2018 classes from uh, a variety of institutions actually across the U.S. about what their transition to practice was like um, amidst uh, this pandemic. And I mean, I've read through some of the comments that we've received so far to some of the open-ended questions we had. Um, and, you know, student, there's a mix. Some talk about, you know, what a what an honor it is to be working um, in this area at this time and to be able to serve. And some talk about, you know, had they known that this is what they were going to walk into, this might not have been the choice that they would have made for a career. And that's obviously heartbreaking to hear. Um, And the whole point of this study was to, you know, our our goal is to publish it in a journal that maybe targets more like uh, nurse managers in hospital settings of just kind of the stresses that these new graduate nurses are experiencing that are even more unique than normal um, because they're working in this pandemic. Um, Another thing that kind of stuck out to me was just even some of them talking about, you know, it's so important. I, I remember for myself too, starting out as a new graduate nurse to just kind of <laughs> develop some relationships with your colleagues on the floor. Um, you know, in those early stages, you know, social distancing, you know, you weren't eating lunch with people, you weren't talking with your colleagues in the same way that you were. And so that led to a lot of loneliness and isolation that some of these new graduate nurses felt. And that I think is something that, um, like nurse managers or other people that are working with these new graduate nurses uh, need to be aware of and, you know, think about strategies to facilitate more ways of socialization for those new nurses so they feel welcome and they feel supported and they have a network um, within their yes, work that Boy, that is, that is not something I had thought of. And, and that, yes, that, I mean, wow. Right. There's the, there's the, just the isolation that comes due to, to the social distancing order, but also, you know, what would that be like for uh, a nurse just out of school? Um, mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's an incredibly important point, right? Um, that would just compound the isolation. And it's the last thing you need is isolation amid all this 
uh, all the, all the, I mean, really just the horrors, the tragedies mm-hmm. that, that, that transpire in front of these, these the nurses, the doctors. What, um, you know, I, I, I sort of, I'm, what little I know about nursing in U.S. history relates to the Civil War, um, nurses on both sides. And one of, one of the themes uh, as these young women went off to, you know, their own scenes of carnage in Confederate and Union hospitals is the tensions between the nurses and the doctors. Um, is that, I mean, is that still an issue? And if so, how is the, how is the nursing profession dealing with it? I I would say maybe not as much of an issue as it has been in the past. I think there's such a push now for what we call this interprofessional communication, um, which is where we try to train all types of healthcare providers, from physicians to nurses to respiratory therapists, pharmacists, about um, how to communicate as a team where everybody comes with kind of these different skills and different knowledge. It's something we do uh, quite a bit of in our program, especially in some of the introductory courses uh, to nursing. And it's part of medical education right now. Um, So I think there, there was an acknowledgement that that was an issue in nursing and certainly, or in healthcare. And certainly it still does happen where there's, you know, some difficulties communicating across disciplines, but um, because there's much more focus on how to um, this training on how to communicate across disciplines and work together to achieve uh, the best outcomes for the patients. I think some of that, some of those challenges have improved or um, have disappeared. <laughs> That's encouraging. And I think, yeah, just the, the, the emphasis on teamwork rather than kind mm-hmm. of the, you know, I don't know the, <laughs> what the equivalent of the, the, the doc equivalent of the sage on the stage professor yes. would be, but yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. The, um, <clears throat> I wanted to, I wanted to, we have about five minutes left here and in the end, toward the end, I want to ask you as we, end, I want to ask you about, um, you know, nursing in, in the liberal arts. It's, it's not every, College. In fact, maybe few liberal arts colleges have a nursing program. How do you? How do you? You know, but you were and you were you were an uh, you're an alum. You were a student mm-hmm. at, at Gustavus. I mean, whether as a student or or only as a faculty member. But how do you how do you connect nursing and liberal arts? How are they connected in in your mind? Yeah. Well, I think you know when we look at what today's nurse is doing, they're leading healthcare systems as nurse executives. They're you know directing public health strategies for counties and states and you know the federal government. And so I think there's there's an absolute need for our nurses to actually be uh, trained and trained in a liberal arts setting, um, so that they have that kind of broad foundation to bring to their practice. That they have this ability to be a leader and have, you know, a world perspective in some ways about healthcare, about people, about <laughs> just society in general. So I, I think actually the liberal arts setting is the perfect place uh, for nurses to get their bachelor's degree. And um, I've, you know, used so much of my Gustavus education that wasn't just the nursing program um, in the care that I've provided to patients in the research that I've done. Um, and I, I don't think I would have been able to be as well-rounded and pursue all the opportunities that I did in my career without that liberal arts uh, foundation. So um, I think I think liberal arts is the in a lot of ways, the perfect place for us to uh, be training um, and graduating nurses. 
Yeah, you're, I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. When I think of my experiences with um, my good experiences, my best experiences with doctors and nurses, mm-hmm. the, the best ones are, are they're not just really good at what they do, knowledgeable, skilled, obviously, but I want that, right. but they're also humane, you know, mm-hmm. and I think the liberal arts at least has that capacity. It doesn't always mm-hmm. work to really to humanize us even even more and um, make us more empathetic, sympathetic, better communicators, all of the above. And just even the, yeah. just, you know, the best, again, the best doctors I've had have just taken an interest in me as a person, exactly. right? So much of yeah. the, the so-called exam isn't, isn't what I would think of as an exam, what I used to think of as an exam. It's just them, nurses and doctors, speaking with me about my my life, my lifestyle, my et cetera, et cetera, and learning about me as a person. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, really, I, my ideal world, every doctor would, nurse would have a liberal arts degree. The other thing you say that's so important, I think, to think about, which I had not thought enough about, is just the way, um, you know, it's a question I had, just, and you've kind of touched on how, how the nursing profession has changed over time, how much really... I mean, nurses are in some ways like executives, right? I mean, mm-hmm. especially in the managerial mm-hmm. positions. Um, I mean, it's not just the it's not just the technology that has changed, but the the right. responsibilities and roles, yeah, right, um, exactly, that have changed. So um, let's hope let's hope this awful pandemic comes to an end, um, and that um, uh, nurses and doctors get the get the rest they deserve. It looked like they were getting some rest, and now the Delta variant is is changing all of that. But let's hope. Um, yeah. And here's to nurses and doctors. Uh, thank you all. Yes. <laughs> and thank yeah. you, Linnea, for for taking time to to speak with me. It's been really interesting to to learn. Uh, more about you and uh, your your expertise and your your journey not too far geographically to Gustavus, yeah. but, but <laughs> your, your journey as a professional, which is really I think quite quite uh, quite inspiring. So thank you so much. Take good care. Uh, hope to see you on campus yeah. <laughs> in, the, <Yes>. in the fall. <laughs> great. Yes. Yeah, if I if <laughs> yeah, that would be great. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College.